Amen. May those words be true. May our hearts be changed as we look at God's word together this morning. I encourage you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. If you turn there, as has been mentioned, uh, today is kind of our uh, one more day that we're encouraging people, promoting uh, care groups, and uh, it's also last t-shirt Sunday for me, so I'm a little disappointed, but I've enjoyed uh, thinking through care groups and our, our uh, opportunity as a church to be a part of those. And so I encourage you to, to pursue that. We're going to talk more about that this morning. And also, as you look at your bulletin, you'll notice a lot of things in there. I encourage you to look through those this afternoon. One thing that we're going to be talking more about also in the coming weeks is something called the Gospel Institute. You may have heard about the Gospel Institute before. The Gospel Institute is designed, or it's been a kind of a Monday evening thing where we offer some classes. And what we're doing now is we're allowing the Gospel Institute to kind of broaden its focus. It's really going to be the means by which we uh, disciple uh, leaders in the church and or one, of the, one of the primary ways. And so I encourage you to think through if there's a desire that God has placed in your heart to be involved more in, in leadership type ministries be it through counseling or uh, other shepherding ministries, women's ministry, that you consider be, uh, the Gospel Institute, and we'll be give, giving some more information about additional classes that we're going to be doing through that and some, some other opportunities. And, you know, if you're considering, maybe God is laying in your heart the idea of a full-time ministry that God might call you to some sort of voca- vocational ministry, we'd encourage you to, to talk to us. We'd love to, to help you uh, discern God's calling. We believe that a person doesn't just uh, enter into vocational ministry, but a, a church encourages them in that process. And you know, Paul talks to Timothy about elders laying on of, of hands for someone for ministry. And so we, we'd encourage you to, uh, to talk to us about that. We'd love to support you in that process if, if that's God's call in your life. Well, 1 John chapter 3, <clears throat> we're going to be looking at, at verses 16 through 18 this morning, but Last week, we looked at verses 11 through 15, and we're going to kind of read that whole section to help us get the context of verses 16 through 18 as we talk about what does it mean to love my brother. And so if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. First John uh, chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we, we do thank you for these, these ancient words that are as true today as they were when, when first written. 
and will be true tomorrow, and will be true on into eternity. Your word will never fail. Father, change our hearts to be in conformity to your will. Pray for those who are weeping this morning, comfort them. For those who are rejoicing, allow us to rejoice with them. Help our relationships with one another uh, to reflect the unity of the body. Let us love each other, not in just word, but in deed and in truth. And we pray this through the enabling work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we asked the question, uh, what does it mean to hate my brother? And as we began talking about what it means to hate my brother, we talked a little bit just briefly about what love is. And we saw that, that love is defined by, by sacrifice, by uh, giving of myself for the benefit of another person. The heart of a, a murderer is the, the heart of a person who's very selfish a person who hates is a person who is seeking their, their own. And so this, this trajectory of the, the murder is a, a, a trajectory of someone who has a heart that is, that is marked by self-love, by, by self-centeredness. This morning, then, we're asking the question that we kind of alluded to a little bit last week, then. Okay, well, if that's what it means to hate my brother, what does it mean to love my brother? And John is going to tell us what it means to love our brothers here in verses 16 through 18, there's some very practical things that John is going to tell us about what it means to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We've come again then to what we call the love test. Remember, there's several tests of fellowship that John is giving us throughout 1 John. There's a test of, of truth. Do we believe the right things about who God is and affirm those things? Have those, those truths taken hold of our lives? Have we placed our faith in Jesus Christ as as our only Savior. That's the truth test. And there's an obedience test. Does our lives reflect the profession we, we say that we've, we've made? And so there's this obedience test. Are our lives reflecting of who we are in Christ? And, and now there's this love test. And John is going to give us some very practical things to know about love here in these verses this morning. We've talked before about the idea of love and wrong understandings of love. But the concept that love means to, to give of ourselves for a, the benefit of another person, that concept in and of itself isn't a very controversial concept, right? I mean, even those who wouldn't consider themselves believers or, or Christians would, would say, yeah, I, I agree in, in concept that love should be sacrificial, that I should give of myself for the benefit of another person. We who are Christians would, would obviously affirm that. But I would suggest to you this morning that many of us, although we, we say we believe that relationships that are loving should be marked by sacrifice, don't really understand what that means. We say that we believe that love, love should be sacrificial, and yet, we don't really understand the depth of sacrifice that should define our relationships with each other. For example, I come to church and I begin a friendship with someone. And I say, theoretically, I, I love this person. 
And in fact, in this relationship, as we become better and better friends, I, I, I tell the person, hey, I really love you. You're a great brother in Christ. And, and I even do some things that are, that are sacrificial, seemingly, in that relationship. I, I give of myself for the benefit of that person at, at times. And what I don't understand, though, perhaps, is that, that even though I think that I have a love for this person, I'm not really engaging in sacrificial love. There are things that I'm receiving in this friendship that are beneficial to me, and so to me it's worth giving up a little bit every now and then because of the, the great benefit I receive from being cared about by another person. And, and the other person may feel the same way. And we don't understand this, but we don't understand what true sacrificial love is. And so our relationship, although it seems pretty solid, is actually resting on some very shaky ground. This happens all the time. And years go by. And our relationship seems to be pretty good. But then some event happens. Something happens that reveals the shallowness of our commitment. I say something that's offensive to him. That's kind of far-fetched. He says something that that bothers me. I, I somehow... I somehow do something to, to damage that relationship, and, or he does something to me that damages that relationship. And, 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 now, and now we're at this, this, this point of tension. Or maybe our, I have this desire for something, and he has desires, and, and, and for some way we, we come into conflict with one another. And now our relationship begins to unravel. And both of us are confused. Like, like what's happened here? Why don't I, I don't even like this person anymore. How could we have ever been so close? I used to love this person. And, and what's being revealed is that my love was a superficial love. And my lack of desire to continue to care for this person when I'm not receiving the affection from them that I desire reveals something very tragic about my misunderstanding of love. And it's not just true in a relationship, right? It's true in, a, or in a, a relationship at church. It's true in our relationship with coworkers or relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ uh, in, in a marriage relationship. We think that we have sacrificially loved, but we don't. John understands this. And so John is going to get practical here in verses 16 through 18. And, and the, the thing that I want you to grasp as we look at this passage is that love is not abstract or theoretical. Love is practical and costly. Let me say that again. Love is not just abstract or theoretical, but love is practical and costly. John understands that, and he believes that it's vital that you and I understand this as well. Let me give you just one other illustration of this to to show you how so often I believe that our lack of understanding of love is not necessarily intentional. It's just just ignorance sometimes. Sinful ignorance, but ignorance nonetheless. I was in a situation uh, where Whitney and I were traveling some time ago and we were in in a different country and we were traveling and we had been very hungry and weary from our, our day of travel. As we got to the, the end of our day, we were supposed to be uh, eating dinner with an American couple at their home, and, 
this other country. And so we, we, we go to their home and we're in the kitchen. And as we're there in the kitchen and we're kind of talking, uh, the, the husband is a very, very uh, fit guy. He has a very regimented workout schedule, very regimented uh, eating schedule. He counts every calorie in the nutritional content of every food that he eats. And so we we're talking about uh, about dinner. And he goes, "Well, I thought that I I thought that we could have sandwiches." Said, Sounds great. And I'm thinking, "Boy, I'm starving. I hope this is a really good sandwich." And um, and uh, we're we're there. And, and he takes uh, he, he takes out the bread and takes two pieces of bread and, and uh, a pile of ham. And uh, he takes the ham and he piles on the ham onto to one side of the sandwich. And I'm thinking, "Yeah, that's going to be plenty." And and he takes the other piece of bread and. Or takes a piece of cheese, put the cheese on top of the ham, and then takes the the uh, the bread and other bread and piece of bread, puts it there, and kind of measures it and sets it aside, and goes, "Okay, now what would you like?" So, oh, um, you know what what you have looks great. I'll just have a ham sandwich. He goes, "Oh, we're out of ham," <laughs> and I thought he was joking, so I laughed, and he just looked at me. I said, oh, you are out of ham now. Uh, I, what would you recommend? And he, and he looked around at the, at the counter. He goes, well, there's some cheese. I will have a cheese sandwich. That sounds great. Okay. Now, I say that because I'm bitter. No, <laughs> I'm not. Although I am hungry thinking about it. But I'm not... I, 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 I'm not. I, re- I really do believe. I honestly believe this. I think my brother was just totally clueless, right? I don't think he was intentionally trying to slight me. I, I don't think he even realized what he had done. I don't think he realized why he was out of ham, even because there was a pig on his sandwich. Um, that's I was. That was an unintentional pun. Um, I don't think he, I really. I think, and I have been there, right? You have been there. We have failed to act in a loving way toward our brother or sister in Christ and just been completely unaware of their need and and how self-centered we are. John is telling us, hey guys, love is not theoretical. It's not abstract. It's practical. It's costly. Let's talk about what it means to love our brother in Christ. Here's the first thing from verse 16. What does it mean to love my brother? It means, number one, that I joyfully embrace my obligation to sacrificially care for him. I joyfully embrace my obligation to sacrificially care for him. Verse 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. Now, there's a problem that exists in, in our lives. And the, and the problem is that in and of ourselves, we cannot even intellectually comprehend or spiritually comprehend what love even is. Ephesians describes this reality. In Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sin. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul goes on and says that, that uh, we aren't to walk like the Gentiles do. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And so the person, apart from God, divinely 
intervening in their lives. A person cannot rightly comprehend what love is and walk in love. We are inevitably going to walk in in darkness and self-centeredness. And he goes on and says uh, that the Gentiles, people who do not have God, have become callous. And they've given themselves up to sensuality. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When you think about, just as an illustration here, young people, sometimes they, they're engaged in these, these dating relationships or some sort of relationship with the, the opposite uh, sex, and they believe that uh, to, to demonstrate love means to, to engage in some sort of immoral behavior. And they say, well, okay, I, I, need, to, I need to engage in this to, to show my boyfriend or my girlfriend that I love them. And, and really what's happening there is not right understanding of love, right? It's, it's exactly what Paul is describing here in Ephesians. It's a, it's a giving oneself up to sensuality, greedy to practice, uh, things that, that are, are not right. And what's true in the area of sexuality is true in so many areas of our life. We think that we're living the right way, and yet what we're actually doing is engaging in, in self-love and, and focusing on ourselves, self-centered lifestyles, the lifestyle that comes from a heart that is the same heart that, that murder comes from. And John says, here's how we do know what love is. We know love because Christ laid down his life for us. You and I have the ability to comprehend what love is because Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, what John is saying is, is not just we have this example. Here's Jesus. He died on a cross. Go and, and do that too. That's not, what the, that's not the ultimate total meaning of the cross. He's saying the cross is not just a picture of what love is. It's, it's the means by which we can comprehend the picture of what love is. Imagine, this is an illustration uh, someone used years ago, but imagine that you're sitting on a dock by a lake. And someone runs past you, jumps into the lake, and drowns because they love you. That makes no sense, right? How in the world does them drowning demonstrate love for you? And, and how in the world would that act ever be intelligible to you as love? It, it would mean nothing. Now, imagine you are in the lake. And you are drowning. And a person jumps into the lake for the purpose of saving you, of delivering you up out of, of the danger that you are in. And, and it costs them their life. Now that would be an act of intelligible love. You would say, as you look at that, no greater love has a man for his brother than he would lay down his life for his friend. Jesus, as he lays down his life, is this volitional thing that he does. He decides to do it, and he does it, not just in some abstract way to show you how much he cares, but but he does this because he loves you in order to save you, to deliver you. And so Christ's death is an act that allows us to understand God's love, but it's also the act that brings us God's love. Jesus in John chapter 10 would say this. It's, it's, this, it's this beautiful picture of contrast between kind of the, the worldly idea of love and, and, and true biblical love. In verse 11 of John 10, he, he would say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, here's his expression again, lays down his life for the sheep. Now he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, 
who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And so a person who's a hired hand may do some occasional nice things for the sheep and take care of them, but his commitment only goes so far. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my very life for the sheep. There's a contrast between this self-seeking hired hand and the shepherd. He flees because he's a hired hand, Jesus says. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus demonstrates his love for us in his sacrificial laying down of his life. It's a volitional decision that he makes to provide for us. Now, look at the verse again here in verse 16 of 1 John chapter 3, and here's the application. Here's the application. So Jesus lays down his life for us. It's the means by which we have a relationship with God. It's an example of what love looks like. And then he says, and we, here's the application, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The same way in which Christ laid down his life for us, volitionally, willingly, lovingly, is to be the same way that you and I lay down our lives for one another. Now, do you see the absolute, utter contrast with the murderer, with the hater? What does a person who hates do? He says, a person who hates his brother is a murderer. The person who murders takes the life of another because it benefits themselves. The person who is a lover is at the very opposite end of the spectrum. Instead of taking a life, they lay down their own to preserve their brother or sisters. The self-centered heart that ultimately expresses itself in murder is the exact opposite heart of the loving heart that ultimately expresses itself in giving even our own life for our brother or sister in Christ. And Christ's giving of his life for us was not done begrudgingly. It was not done with disdain. It was not done half-heartedly. It was done willingly with joy. As you and I think about what does it mean to love my brother, the first thing that I think is very important for us to understand is, is loving our brother isn't some something we have on our to-do list, a, a little box and next to this box says, love my brother, do the minimum things I have to do to, to love my brother or sister. I've done something nice for you, check. It's not some drudgery, not some disdainful obligation. It's my joyful, joyful obligation. I embrace it with joy, and I'm excited about the opportunity to love you, to lay down my life for you as I care for you. It's a very important concept to understand. If a person begrudgingly cares for another believer, it says they haven't quite understood 
the gospel and Christ's love for them. Now, I'm not saying that, that love is going to be, our love is going to be perfectly expressed all the time. I'm not saying that, that um, as I engage in sacrificial, in sacrificial uh, acts for you, my, my heart is always going to be in the, the right place. But I'm saying this is the goal for which we strive, and this is what we understand ultimate love looking like. And, and as I see, I think this is important too, as I see my own heart failing in its love toward you, I acknowledge that and I ask for God's greater grace instead of just assuming I love you because I'm doing some nice things for you. I think that goes a long way to preserving the unity of Christ's church. If we recognize where we're failing and ask for God's greater grace in those areas instead of just assuming I'm loving you because I said I love you. I'm loving you because I did a couple nice things for you. Loving you, first of all, doesn't mean to love my brother. It means that I joyfully embrace my obligation to lay down my life and care for my brother. Secondly, secondly, it means I lay down my life for my brother in practical ways. John gets very practical here in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love, not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, just saying I love you doesn't make it so. You know what? Even being eager to do nice things for you doesn't mean that, I, that I'm ultimately loving you. Saying, hey, uh, I'd love to help you out sometime doesn't mean ultimately that I love you. You know, we just read in John where Jesus says, I, I lay down my life for the brothers, and, or I lay down my life for the sheep. And, and that's not the only time that we encounter someone in the book of John talking about laying down his life. You know who else talks about laying down his life? Peter. John chapter 13. Peter, as he encounters Jesus, uh, says to him, in, uh, this is John chapter 13, verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. What does Jesus say? Look, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And then what happens at the end of John? Jesus has to confront Peter in his lack of love and continue draw him closer to him. John lays out a scenario here. The scenario begins with a person who has this world's goods. He says, if anyone has this, this world's goods, and you say, well, uh, oh good, that doesn't apply to me, because he's talking here about someone who's wealthy, who's, who's kind of rolling in the dough, who's, who's been lavished with everything the world provides, and, and that's not true. That's not what he's saying. That expression has the world's goods. I, I think what John is saying, based on how this word is used elsewhere, I think what John is describing is a person who has access to the basic necessities of life. You could put it this way. If anyone has access to food, shelter, clothing, as I look around the room, you all seem clothed and well-fed. This applies to us, in other words. So the scenario is a person who has, who has access to the basic necessities of life, and then God brings someone into their life who has needs. It says, uh, has, um, 
has a brother in need. He sees that person. He observes them. It's not just out of the corner of his eye, but, but there that brother is brought into his, his sphere of relationship within the, the body of Christ. He sees that need. He comprehends that need. He understands that that need exists. And then the third thing that happens, he has the world's goods. He sees a brother in need. And then what happens, it says that he closes his heart against him. There's a self-centeredness to this individual that allows him to comprehend a need that his brother has and make the decision not to meet it. Did you know that not meeting a need is deciding not to meet it? To seeing a need and to, to see a need and, and to make the, the decision to ignore it is is to make the decision not to, to meet it. Here's what Scripture tells us about us if, if this is true of us. Proverbs twenty one thirteen. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Deuteronomy 15, 7, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. James 2, 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and, and one of you says to him, uh, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So this, this brother comes to me and, and expresses this need that he has. And I say, well, brother, let me pray for you. <laughs> now, now go, be warmed and filled. What good does that do him? Answer, None. <laughs> James goes on to say in in James chapter 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat and, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Listen to this, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. What is self-indulgence? It's not the heart of one who loves or the heart of one who hates. It's the heart of one who hates, right? You have lived a life of self-indulgence, of, of self-focus. And as you've done it, you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James's point here isn't just about physical wealth. There's a hard attitude that he's concerned with that's, that manifests itself in how this person handles material goods. And, and the same is true for John here. John's purpose isn't ultimately to get people to be much better sharers. 
what John is saying is, look, there, there's this heart attitude, and, and it manifests itself in how you treat material goods. And here's a practical expression of love. If you are a person who can handle material possessions and see someone else who's in need and not feel a compulsion to give them those material things, it says something about your heart. There's something spiritually wrong with you. You're a person who is self-indulgent, a person who is self-centered, self-seeking. You're not a person who loves. Love is going to manifest itself for others in practical ways. His conclusion is, is how can God's love abide in this person? The practical expression of love in John's mind is crucial. The love of God is this, this love, I, I think, that comes from God, manifesting itself in a love for God, and there's a lack of practical love that exists here. There's an illustration I, I used several years ago, a quote from the book, The Brothers Karamazov, and listen to what, uh, listen to what one of the characters in this, this novel says. He's, he's confessing to this religious person, this, this heart attitude he has, and and listen to what he says about his heart attitude. I love humanity, this person says. I love humanity, but I wonder at myself. The more I love humanity in general, the less I love human beings in particular. In other words, I have a great love for the idea of humanity, but, but man, the more I love humanity in kind of this theoretical sense, the, the, the less I love individual people. In my dreams, he said, I have often come to making enthusiastic schemes for the service of humanity, and perhaps I might actually have faced crucifixion itself if it had been suddenly necessary. I would have been crucified for someone or for humanity. But, he said, but, I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together, as I know by experience. As soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs my self-complacency and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men, one because he's too long over his dinner, another because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. But it's always happened that the more that I detest humanity in general, the more ardent becomes, or the more, uh, the more I detest men individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity. There's a truth to that, right? It's easy for me to love in theory. It's easy for me to say, I, I love other Christians. I, I love my family in general. But to engage in real, sacrificial love with others. Now that's hard. It's easy to say, I love you. It's hard to love you in practical ways. Last week we looked at some practical illustrations of, of what it means to have a hard attitude of, of hatred, of self-centeredness. I was tempted 
just this week to say, hey, everything I said not to do last week, go ahead and do the opposite, okay? But let me give you some other, just some examples of what it means to love. What, what does it mean? What does the expression, lay down my life, mean? I mean, if uh, someone came into this room and begin to, to, to harm people, I, I think we say, okay, I, I know what laying down my life means there. I'd, I'd, I'd jump in front of the gunman or, or, or someone that's trying to harm other people, and I'd, I'd, I'd take whatever was coming myself. I mean, that's, that's love, kind of, that's laying down my life. But what does, it, what does it mean to lay down my life in relationship with someone at church? What does it mean to lay down my life for my spouse, for my kids, for my parents? Let me give you some examples. And this isn't an exhaustive list, but just some things to think through. Some things to think through. I lay down my life for my brother, number one, by, by meeting his physical needs. How do I lay down my life for my brother? I lay down my life for my brother, number one, by meeting his physical needs. I see a brother in need and I, I meet it. I give of myself. I give of the things that God has entrusted to me to benefit him. Now the question often comes, okay, well, well Daniel, how far do I take this? I mean, I, I've got needs, and, and sometimes, quite frankly, some people may come into my life who, who may not really be on the up and up, and, and how, do I, how do I handle that? And I, and I say, you know, absolutely, you have to be careful. You need to be cautious. Um, but I'd also say this, I'd err on the side of caution. I'd err on the side of caution for the sake of my soul, though. In, in other words, I need to be cautious that my heart is not becoming hard. And I'd err on the side of generosity to make sure that my soul is where it needs to be. If you are a person who says, you know what, I try to be cautious, and I try to make sure there's legitimate needs and people who really need it. And in the last year, you found no one who really needs your help. There might be a problem with you, not with the people that God is bringing before you. There are people in this church who need you, not just, not just physical needs, in terms of money, but other types of physical needs, physical types of provision, of, of things you can do to, to care for them in physical ways. And if you haven't found them, the problem probably lies with you. You're not laying down your life for others by meeting their physical needs, as John says you must. Number two, I lay down my life for my sister by by speaking gracious words to and about her. It's kind of the opposite thing that we, we talked about last week, which we talked about hateful words that, that tear down and destroy. But, but what this means is that if I'm a person who's loving, I am proactively speaking things that, that benefit others. In my words to, towards my sister in Christ, I'm saying things about her that are encouraging things. I'm, I'm saying things about her that, that will build her up and, and edify her. And, and other people, as, as I talk about her, I'm talking about her in a way that causes them to, to love her more and to appreciate her more and to, to be drawn closer into relationship with her. 
if, if my speech is not proactively gracious, I do not love my sister. I am not laying down my life for her. I lay down my life for her by speaking, proactively speaking gracious words to and about her. Uh, number three, I lay down my life for my brother by releasing him from wrongs he has committed against me. I've been in this relationship with a, a brother in Christ, and, and now somehow he's done something that, that, that personally hurts me. And now I have a decision to make. How much am I going to make him pay for what he has done against me? Now maybe you say, well, I'm not a, I'm not a vengeful person. I'm not going to like, you know, trash him. I'm not going to like set his house on fire. I mean, I'm not going to go crazy. I'm just, you know, I think there should be a little, you know, a little groveling. I think there should be a little recognition of, of what a terrible thing he's done for me before I start having warm feelings towards him again or before I, I treat him in a gracious way again. You know what laying down my, my life means? It means I am giving up my so-called right to be right, to receive recognition that I was right, that I've been wrong. I'm laying that down because he is more important than my right to be right. I love him more than I love being recognized as, as being the one who is wrong. If I'm not willing to lay down my life for my brother in this way, it says something about my relationship with God, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Colossians 3, 13, in other words, what Jesus is saying there, by the way, is that if I do not forgive others, it reveals something about the type of relationship I have with God. I haven't received his forgiveness and understood it, and that's why I'm not lavishing it on others. Colossians chapter 3, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, he's talking about our relationships here, you forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Ephesians 4, let all bitterness Wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I lay down my life for my brother by releasing him from the obligation to, to pay me back. I release him from the wrongs that he's committed against me. There's a constant heart attitude of laying down my life when wrong. And if you're not willing to do that, you don't love him. You don't love her. Don't kid yourself and say that you do. Don't say, I love him, but if he would just do such and such, then we could do... If there's not a willingness to forgive, a willingness to reconcile, you don't love. You don't love. It's hard. But you... I say this because... John, who, who loves the believer, says this. It's an old guy saying this because he loves these people. If you love, you lay down your life.
if you don't lay down your life, you don't love. Don't call something that's much less than love, love. Another thing that I do is I lay down my life. Another example, I, I lay down my life for my sister by not acting on my emotions. By not acting on my emotions. This is so huge in relationships, right? I feel a certain way, rightly or wrongly, and I believe that it is my right in this relationship to act on those emotions because, hey, that's how I feel. I feel sad, and so I'm going to treat you a certain way. I feel discouraged, so I think it's my right to treat you a certain way. Or this, I feel angry, and because I feel angry, maybe because of what you have done, I have a right to express my anger. Laying down my life for you means I give up my right to just vent my emotions. Even though the emotions may be valid, even though it may be uh, realistic to feel certain ways, as I lay down my life for you, I say, I am not going to act toward you how I feel emotionally. Think about the example of anger in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 22, 24 wisely warns us, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. In other words, he's talking about these, these close relationships. You need to be careful of a person who's angry because they're not acting in a loving way. A man without self-control, Proverbs 25, 28 says, is like a city broken into and left without walls. He's in a dangerous state. He's unable to control himself will bring harm to himself and to those around him. Proverbs 29:11 a fool a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a, a wise man quietly holds it back. I lay down my life for you. I give of myself as I refuse to just vent my emotions at you. How else do I lay down my life for my brother or sister? I lay down my life for my brother by preferring him over myself. By preferring him over myself. Philippians uh, chapter 2, what does Paul tell us about Jesus? He says, uh, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he talks about Jesus' humility. Laying down my life for you means that I, I prefer you over myself. I, whenever your needs and my needs come into conflict, there's, there's a willingness that I have to, to prefer you over me. And, and you have a desire to prefer me over you. And it's just this beautiful disagreement of who gets to serve the other. And sometimes I will graciously let you win. I lay down my life for my brother by preferring him over myself. Next, I lay down my life for my sister by giving up my ambitions for her. By giving up my ambitions for her. You know that it's very hard for an ambitious person to love. If we define ambition in terms of promoting self, of exalting self, we define it that narrowly, it's impossible for an ambitious person to love. Now, if we talk about ambitions in terms of pursuing the glory of God, and you know, Paul talks about, I make it my ambition, th th there's a positive sense of the word, but giving up my ambition in the negative sense is essential if I'm going to lay down my life for my brother or sister. Some of you are 
in a marriage relationship that is in great danger because of the ambitions of, of one or both members of that marriage. If one of you has have, have selfish ambitions that are causing you to pre- prefer yourself over and against your spouse again and again and again, and it's destroying your marriage because despite what you're telling yourself, you do not love your spouse. Some of you are ambitious in the workplace and you have these ambitions, and these ambitions are causing you to act in unloving, way, uh, unloving ways towards your co-workers. And that ambition is revealing that you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Despite what you may tell yourself, that ambition is killing those relationships. It's causing you to seek self, and there's no way that you can love them as you seek yourself. Our church is in danger from ambitious leaders. If our leaders begin to act in ambitious ways, self, self-seeking ambition, it can tear this church apart. God give us the grace in our marriage, in our relationships, in this church, to put aside ambition, to take up the cross, and to die daily to self. I lay down my life for you by giving up my ambitions for you. Another example, last example. I lay down my life for my brother by pursuing a relationship with him. By pursuing a relationship with him. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who, is, who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and, and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What this means is that you and I are to be engaged in, in relationships with, with one another. I, I write down uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 through 10. We don't have time to get to it this morning, but there's a passage that, that really describes Paul as he comes into Thessalonica and, and the type of relationship he has, first of all, with people who are unbelievers, that the love he shows them by giving up his very life for them, and, and then how he continues to love them as they, they respond to the gospel, and how his, his whole demeanor toward them is, is, is marked by this desire to pursue a relationship with them and give of himself so that they can understand the beauty of following Jesus Christ. We're talking about care groups a lot in our church. And, and I, I've mentioned this before, for, for those of you who don't know, uh, by nature I am an introverted person. And, and, and the idea of pursuing relationships to me is, is very, it's, it's scary. <laughs> and yet there is joy in pursuing relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ, first of all, because it means I'm being obedient to God, but also because as I, as I am obedient and I, I, I force myself to, to do the hard work of building a relationship, and it is hard work for, for most of us, right, to, to build true biblical relationships, I, I experience the joy of fellowship. One of the hardest things for me, I, I believe, um, as I think about my ministry at Bethany Community Church, one of the hardest realizations that I've had to come to is that I can't be in close relationship with every person who comes to our church. 
That's hard. I'm, I'm looking forward to eternity when I have more time. <laughs> we just spent a couple thousand years together, right? But right now, we, we can't. We, we can't all know each other to the level that, that, that we need to, do, to be obedient to Hebrews 10 here, right? I think that's why it's so important to commit yourself to pursuing relationship in small groups. To say, you know what, I, I know this is difficult. I know this is hard. I've got a million other things that, that, I, that I could be doing here on the Sunday night or this Tuesday night or Sunday after church or Friday evening. I've got work to do. I've got thing, you know, activities with the kids. I've got, you know, that TV isn't going to watch itself. You know, there's, there's all sorts of things I could be doing. But you know what? I've got to lay down my life. I can't love you in theory. I can't love you abstractly. I've got a love, my love for you must be practical and it must be costly. And part of that, that cost is pursuing a relationship with you. And that's why we are so adamant here as we've been talking about care groups the last few weeks and we'll continue to do it in the next, next couple, couple weeks. Get engaged in relationships with one another. For God's glory and your benefit, be engaged, pursue relationships somehow with one another. And it may not be care group for each of us, but but pursue relationship by God's grace, for God's glory, for your benefit. Now, last thought, what does it mean to love my brother? This is just kind of tying in this whole passage, verse 11 through verse uh, 18. It means that God's love abides in me. It means that God's love abides in me. He began by talking about the, the command to love one another, and he says in verse 15, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And then he says in, in verse 17, how does God's love abide in a person who closes his heart to his brother who, who doesn't love him? And the answer is, of course, it doesn't. We must love not just in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How do I know that I'm in relationship with God? I, be, I begin my relationship with God by recognizing that I'm a sinner, that I, that I deserve God's eternal punishment, but that God in His grace sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for me, to take my place, to, to take the penalty of, of sin for me. He rose from the dead. And now, through his, his death and life, I can trust in Him. I can place my trust completely in Jesus Christ for my salvation. What that means is that I have received lavish love, love beyond all comprehension. And if I have truly received that love and if my heart has been transformed, I cannot help but love you. Loving you means that I joyfully embrace my obligation to care for you. It it means that I manifest that love for you in practical ways. And it means that God's love abides and remains in me and I have confidence of my fellowship with him and with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that, that he does abide with us, that you, you remain in us. We pray that by your grace, we would love each other, that our love would not be theoretical, it would not just be abstract, but our love would be real, it would be practical, it would be costly, it would reflect the love that we have received from you. We pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen.